You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're going to read this morning from uh, Genesis uh, 32. I'm going to pick up uh, the story of Jacob. Uh, Last time when I dealt with uh, uh, an earlier part of Jacob's life, uh, so long ago that perhaps I need to just recap a little on that. We found Jacob at Bethel. His life, uh, I'm sure he felt, was in a bit of a mess. He was on the run from his brother who was uh, anxious to take his life. Uh, And if he had taken the opportunity to reflect on why his life was in a mess, uh, he might have thought, well, I failed to learn from the lessons of history. Uh, Grandfather uh, Abraham tried to help God out to fulfill his covenant promises and made a bit of a mess of that. I've done the same. Uh, He may have thought about uh, the dysfunctional family of which he was a member. His father had ambitions for his brother Esau. His mother had contrary ambitions for him. He might have thought of uh, his own sinful nature, Jacob the Twister. What an appropriate name that was for someone who again and again sought to deceive and to uh, struggle to gain uh, the blessing of God his way. And of course God met with him uh, in that great and glorious uh, dream you will remember. Uh, God in his grace drew near to a man who was at the very uh, end of himself in a sense. And God republished the covenant promises that had been made with Abraham. Uh, And God made it clear that what he would do, he would do himself. The I will, I will, I wills came through. You will remember the republishing of those promises. Uh, The initiative was God's. The work was due to his grace alone. And then Jacob responds to all of that. Surely God is in this place. Uh, This was perhaps his first encounter with the living God. uh, And he is overwhelmed. He is wowed by that fact. Uh, Not only that, but uh, Jacob enters into what for him was really a bargain. Uh, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. If you will, then I will. That was how he saw God's dealings with him. Uh, There was little of grace uh, involved in his understanding of uh, who God was or how he uh, acted. So we're going to read uh, 20 years later, uh, Genesis uh, 32. Uh, God has at this juncture told uh, Jacob to return to his homeland. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, that was his uncle, and have remained there till now. 
I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might or may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with them, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau uh, when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. 
because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Years ago I heard a preacher say, if you want to experience uh, the blessing of God, then learn to wrestle like Jacob until you pluck from God's hand the blessing you desire. Now what's wrong with that? Well, it misrepresents uh, God's character in a big way. It unduly exalts uh, man's role in the whole process. It's a very man-centered approach to blessing. It also engages in very faulty exegesis of the passage that we have read. I wonder if you've noticed that the prosperity gospel, among other things, moves the focus of God's blessing away from God's sovereign grace as God the bestower towards the quality of human performance where it may be the faith or the intensity of the seeker that is uppermost in thought. Jacob had a, had a view of the blessing of God that was also performance-related, something that could be bargained for. I will if you will. That's the deal. Now, 20 years had passed since Jacob's first uh, meaningful encounter with God at Bethel when he was unwittingly enrolled in the school of God's instruction. And this morning I want to look at the verses uh, before us really under three heads. Uh, the prolonged course of instruction. Uh, and secondly, a pupil uh, tested. And thirdly, a personal tutorial. Uh, well then, the first of these, a prolonged course of instruction. And we need to remind ourselves that Jacob did not have access to Scripture uh, he was certainly partially instructed in his dream at Bethel, what God revealed to him there. But the bulk of, of his instruction over 20 years had come through God's providential dealings with him. That's how he was learning. But what in particular did he need to learn? According to Calvin, God's curriculum of instruction contains two principal uh, subjects. Uh, Bible colleges take note. Two principal subjects. And the first of these is the sinfulness of man. It is important to grasp uh, the sinfulness, the depravity of human nature. 
And the second is the character of God. Here are the two things uh, we need to get our minds wrapped around. I suppose Bunyan's two-sided mirror reflects that focus. We need to see the depth of depravity in our own hearts, all of the warts and blemishes, the sin that is there. But we also need to grasp something of the beauty of who God is and God's uh, character. It has been said that the blackness of human depravity uh, sets off uh, the wonder of God's grace and all its glory, a bit like uh, a jeweler's shop. I'm sure you've all visited them. Uh, But when you walk past the window, diamonds are invariably set in a particular color of velvet. It's not a nice royal blue or a crimson. It's invariably against a black velvet. Now, why is that? Well, the jewelers aren't daft. A diamond sparkles. A multifaceted diamond sparkles is shown off the better against the blackness of that background. Uh, And there's something of that surely uh, going on here too. Well, what form did Jacob's instruction take? Uh, First of all, God's character has been revealed to Jacob over these 20 years. God's faithfulness towards his covenant promises. Uh, Verse 10, uh, Jacob acknowledges God's kindness and his faithfulness. This is what I've learned. God can be trusted. Uh, God has provided for all of my needs. Uh, And we could look at the covenant promises in detail if we had time, I suppose. But let's just grapple one. The promise to make him uh, a great nation had been fulfilled in embryo form. There he is, 11 uh, men who are going to be... uh, There's another one still to be born. uh, But they're going to be the, the, uh, the foundation of Israel, the 12 tribes... Uh, God has begun uh, to answer in this way. But in those 20 years, Jacob has not yet grasped the wonder of God's grace. And he continues to see himself as a contributor in the business of securing God's blessing. Secondly, uh, and you need to read the previous chapters for yourself... Uh, Jacob had contact with his uncle Laban. Now, he was quite a man. Uh, If uh, Jacob was a deceiver, then Uncle Laban could teach him a thing or two. But he served to be a mirror to Jacob's heart. Jacob saw in his dealings with Laban how he acted in his dealings with others. Uh, think of his marriage. Wife number one, not the woman I thought I was marrying. How could you possibly do that? Time and again, his wages were changed. What had been promised? Broken promise, broken promise, broken promise. His uncle deceived and deceived and deceived. And while he had certainly learned to detest Laban's deceitfulness, he appears unmoved by his own. He hasn't learned yet to grieve over his own deceitfulness and stubborn self-centeredness. 
And perhaps we too are often blind to the seriousness of our own sin, are we not? Think of David, for example. Uh, Remember the death of Uriah? David went on as though everything was normal. And Nathan the prophet comes and tells him the story of the rich man who was visited by a friend and he uh, goes and he kills the only lamb of his neighbor to feed his visitor rather than choose one lamb from his own flock. And David was furious and says, bring me this man, he needs to be punished. And Nathan says, you're the man. Wow, you're the man. He was blind to his own sin. I wonder how many of us have discovered that the sins in others that most irk us, that most disturb us, are often the very sins that we both shelter and pamper in our own hearts. It's so easy, isn't it, to be blind uh, to our sins. So, you know, if we're criticizing Jacob, we need to criticize ourselves. And today, God's curriculum of instruction, I think, remains unchanged. We need to learn the depravity of our own hearts. We need to learn the wonder of God's character Uh, and grace. Uh, Of course, we have access to the Scriptures. That's God's uh, primary means of revealing himself to us. But he does uh, surely also uh, speak through a variety of providences in our lives. Uh, John Flavel has written, the providence of God is like Hebrew words, can only be read backwards. Uh, It's not easy Uh, to instantly understand what God is saying in his providence. It's only something that dawns on us afterwards so often. And when God teaches lesson through his word, through providence, the lesson that has been taught is often put to the test. And that's what we find happening in verses 1 to 21. The pupil is tested. And it's important to see that God's test is set within the context of obedience. In chapter 27 and verse 45, Jacob's mother had promised to send word to Jacob when Esau's anger towards him had subsided so he could return home. But that message never came. And now... God is saying, Jacob, go home. Surely a dangerous move. However, when we take a costly step of obedience, God invariably provides encouragement for that task. And that encouragement came to Jacob in two ways. The first came before God's command to return. You see, Jacob was prospering in the land of Haran. And under normal circumstances, he may well have thought to himself, this would be a great place to stay. See how the family's growing. See how I'm prospering materially. But then we read of the increasing hostility of Laban and his sons, chapter 31, verses 1 to 2. They were drooling over Jacob's growing wealth, and it became clear that Haran was no longer a safe haven. These guys want what I've got. 
Uh, and God will often use sore circumstances to loosen, as it were, our roots and move us on. Sometimes Christians get tied up in knots over guidance. Do I move? Do I stay? Do I move? Do I stay? However, when God begins to loosen the roots, often that's a choice that is almost being made for us. The second encouragement to obey is supernatural in character and comes as that step of obedience is taken. Notice chapter 32 verse 1. The angels of God met him. Can you imagine the immense comfort brought by this supernatural bodyguard, God's army, on my side. This encouragement which God brings when we take a step of costly obedience uh, is, I think, most beautifully illustrated at the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember that watershed day when Jesus moved from being a holy private person into his public office and ministry? He openly declared his intention to be the representative of his people, a costly step that would lead to the cross itself. And remember his obedience was met with an encouraging response from heaven. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father was saying, go on, go on. It's costly, yes, but go on. It's the right step. It's an obedient step. Go on. Well, emboldened by his angelic messengers, Jacob sent, uh, sorry, his angelic minders, Jacob sent messengers ahead to advise Esau of his return. But any expectation of a warm welcome is shattered when, in verse 6, the messengers report Esau and 400 riders were heading his way. Was he about to reap the whirlwind of his earlier deception of his brother? Jacob's prayer response to his impending danger is seen in verses 9 to 12. This is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. It has been described by some as one of the great Old Testament prayers. Note its construction. First he recognizes the God of Abraham and of Isaac is his God. I am in a covenant relationship uh, with the Lord. He grasps that. He also suggests that his plight is a result of a step of obedience. Lord, you told me to come, and now look at the danger I'm in. So, uh, you know, you, you, you get uh, the picture. Uh, if I'm doing what you want me to do, then uh, surely uh, I should expect uh, some help from you. Thirdly, he acknowledges he's an unworthy recipient of God's blessing in verse 10. Fancy Jacob calling himself unworthy goodness he's been learning a lot he's unworthy then the next verse 11 he acknowledges his fear and his need of God's help goodness Jacob acknowledging you need to be helped wow there's progress and then in verse 12 he pleads for help on the basis of God's promise Lord you made promises I'm trusting you to keep your word 
Now, we could spend a lot of time teasing that out. There's a lot there. It's a great prayer, uh, you say. A wonderful prayer. What theological insight and understanding he's gained in 20 years. But I want to suggest this morning that that prayer loses something of its sparkle when we examine the surrounding context in which it is made. You see, his immediate response on hearing of his danger was not to run to God, but to formulate his own plan of salvation. Verses 7 and 8. What's he doing? He's dividing his possessions, his family, his servants into two groups. If one is attacked, maybe the other will escape. That's my plan. Only then does he pray. And secondly, having, having asked for God's help in prayer, he continues to execute his plan. Verses 13 to 21. A plan that calls for a series of bribes to be sent to Esau. Gift after gift after gift after gift. Great plan, Jacob. Uh, or is it? Given recent experience, remember his earlier protection uh, from the harm Laban intended him. We read of that in chapter 31 and verse 29. Laban was coming, having discovered that uh, Jacob had deceived him and fled. And he's coming uh, to do him harm. And God says, don't touch my man. Don't touch him. So given that history, you would think, surely you can trust God to do something similar here. But no. It only pleasures God's heart when we tell him we trust him to be true to his word if we rest in what we believe. But Jacob doesn't entirely believe that God can save him without some contribution on his part. Do you see the problem? The theological understanding, the gears of his theological understanding fail to, to mesh with his daily practice. There is a disconnect between theology and practice. Theological understanding, no matter how enlightened it might be, or how orthodox, is of absolutely no benefit to us if it's not woven into the fabric of our daily behavior. Now, clearly, Jacob failed to score straight A's. And God, far from being indifferent, goes to remarkable lengths to instruct him. God's response is staggeringly condescending. He steps down from his throne of glory to provide his pupil, if you like, with a face-to-face -face tutorial. And that's what we look at finally. Jacob has placed his family and a river between himself and Esau having taken every precaution for self-preservation, covered every possible contingency, and manipulated every circumstance, he may have thought, right, I've done all that, but where's God when you need him? Where is God? 
Jacob, verse 24, was alone. And God often speaks into our aloneness, for then we're often more receptive to him, for we're not distracted by a hundred and one other things. God's personal tutorial uh, is uh, about to take place. And suddenly, Jacob found himself wrestling for his life. And the match went on for hours. I've watched some of these professional wrestling matches on TV. You know, 20 minutes and the sweat's pouring off them and they've had enough. This wrestling match went on for hours and hours uh, till uh, daybreak. Jacob, you see, wasn't going to give in. He was used to coming out on top to winning. From the day of his birth, he'd been someone who didn't let go. He never lost in any situation when he put his mind to it. We live, don't we, in a day when we're told, you can do anything you put your mind to. You just need to put your mind to it and, 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 and you'll succeed. That's a dangerous philosophy on a number of fronts. It certainly promotes stubborn pride and arrogant independence and also an indifference towards those that might be trampled upon as we seek to secure our goal. Now, as Jacob's wrestling bout progressed, he made a terrifying discovery. Uh, The identity of his opponent is clarified. Compare verse 24 with verse 30. 24, it's a man, verse 30... It's God he's been wrestling with. Hosea identifies the wrestler as the angel of the Lord. In other words, he's saying a a pre-incarnational angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is uh, so often a pre-incarnational appearance of Christ. So Jacob's opponent has been none other than the Son of God. But how can God be his fierce antagonist? How can God take sides against him? He's God's man. It just, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And to make matters worse, his opponent's touch wastes the strongest ligament in his body. Referee, that's a foul. That's not allowed, surely. But victory can no longer be Jacob's. God resorts to extreme measures when we refuse to yield. You see, God always, always wins this kind of contest. And if we're smart, we'll see that early on and submit to him. I wonder if God has ever put your life uh, out of joint. Has he had to dislocate your plans when you attempted to do something contrary to his will? Suddenly God's hand reaches out to cripple you. Maybe a financial setback, some disastrous loss, some disturbing illness, some sore disappointment. Such things are often, not always, often designed to weaken us in order that the source of our strength might be in God alone. Jacob realized he would be left a cripple for life. More immediately, any tentative hopes he had of overcoming Esau or even running away from him are dashed. Vitally, he saw himself as helpless. 
And it is at this point in verse 26 that a truly significant change takes place. And we daren't minimize its importance. Jacob moves from wrestling for supremacy to clinging for support. Jacob, if you like, becomes a limpet man. There is the relationship change. Mr. Independence becomes Mr. Dependent. Jesus taught that a relationship of childlike dependence was the entry point into the blessing of God. Did he not? Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jacob's new clinging dependent relationship recognizes the futility of confidence in human performance and strength. God's grace bestows the blessing of God's strength on those who are conscious of their own weakness. How did Paul put it? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when I'm weak, when I'm conscious of that, then I am strong. Jacob at last was ready to accept that his help lay in God alone. However, before God's blessing was bestowed, a critical question is asked of Jacob. Verse 27, what's your name? Now, clearly, God is not suggesting that he had a problem remembering who this man was. He knew his name. Rather, Jacob is being forced, I believe, to think back to the time when he'd entered his father's tent disguised as his brother, and Isaac, his father, asked, Who are you? Identify yourself before I give you my blessing. What's your name? And on that occasion, Jacob answered, I'm Esau. He had pretended to be something he wasn't in order to gain the blessing that he coveted. And by doing so, he lived up to his real name, Jacob, grasper, cheat, deceiver, supplanter. God now puts the same question to Jacob. Who is it that asks for my blessing? And Jacob was to discover that blessing comes not by hiding our true identity, but by revealing it. By identifying himself as Jacob, he did much more than confess his name. He confessed his character. He owned up to being a schemer, a plotter, a deceiver. God forced him to confess his past before setting before him a new future. This new stage in Jacob's life is marked by a new name given by God, Israel, which means struggles with God. Because he had struggled with God and with men and had overcome, we're told. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Jacob didn't win this wrestling match. Far from it, he was the undisputed loser of the match. Simply put, Jacob won by losing. By losing the wrestling match, he won through to a place of dependence upon God. 
And this very dependence won the blessing of God, and it was in this spirit of God dependence that he would now overcome the hatred and anger of Esau. How different from Jacob's earlier experience when Jacob had contended with men and thought he had won but in reality had lost. He had cheated Esau out of his blessing, but he lost his brother's affection. He had outwitted his blind dad, but he had lost his home comforts. He had deceived Laban, but lost his goodwill. None of his so-called victories had brought him any lasting benefit. Now it was his confrontation with God that he'd lost only to discover that in losing he had won. We read in verse 30, God blessed Jacob. How are we to understand that blessing? Was it a covenant blessing? Yes, it was. Whenever you unpack the covenant, you will always find Christ the Savior at the center Remember that Jacob had just confessed his character as a self-serving, self-confident sinner. Christ, who stands at the heart of the covenant, says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The grace of forgiveness lies at the heart of the covenant. And Jacob would have experienced, I am sure, the peace of being Uh, forgiven. Secondly, Jacob had been blessed by having his focus shifted. You see, he's a man who's now hemmed into God. From this point on, he is no longer trusted, or he no longer trusted in himself as the architect of his salvation. Indeed, uh, his experience is beautifully illustrated in Wesley's words. Other refuge have I none, hangs my weary soul on thee. Leave, I'll leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. This, you see, has been the great object of his personal tutorial after the conferral of a new name with all its significance, Jacob asks uh, the identity of his protagonist. Uh, And Jacob is refused in a manner that implies, Jacob, do you really need to ask who I am? Isn't it obvious who you've been battling with? Verse 29. Jacob knew he had seen God face to face. Now, Jacob's doctrine of the Trinity was far from being highly developed. Yet he had a foretaste of a glorious gospel reality. His protagonist for a few brief hours, who had stooped down from a glorious transcendent throne in order to provide a one-to-one tutorial would one day stoop even lower than that, clothing himself with our humanity, living a sinless life that would be poured out to death upon the cross. His opponents would proclaim him a loser, but God the Father would declare him victor by raising him 
from the dead. A victor whose sacrificial death is key not only to the transforming work of God in the lives of men and women from that day until now, but to the saving transformation of all Old Testament believers, including Jacob. If you like, what we have here is an overture of the symphony of salvation that we find in the Gospels. George Muller of Bristol, the founder of several orphanages, was once asked the secret of his extraordinary success, and he answered, there was a day when George Muller died. There was a day when George Muller died. Of course, there are many deaths to die in the Christian life. Uh, Some are more memorable than others. A day when God laid hold of you, wrestled with you, reached out and touched you. The self-confidence, the self-centeredness that impaired fruitful service. Remember Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny self and take up their cross and follow me. I wonder if God's wrestling with some here uh, this morning. Has he begun to touch perhaps some area of your life in order to bring you to an end of yourself? He identified a death that you need to die. He does that not to destroy you, but to open up to you the possibility of true, useful, fruitful service. When you are convinced of your weakness, you then come to know the blessing of God's strength. Perhaps there are some here today, not yet Christians, You may have heard Christianity criticized as being a crutch for the weak, for those who aren't strong enough to stand in their own two feet. And in a sense, that criticism is justified. Christianity is a crutch religion. God's aim is to bring us to the realization that we simply cannot save ourselves. The blessing of God is not something to which we have a right or something we can earn or deserve, but it's something that he so graciously bestows. And in order to do that, he often brings us to an end of ourselves that we might learn to hang helplessly on Christ. There is no place safer or more secure than that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who is committed to our instruction. We thank you that you are able to organize circumstances and providences that will instruct us as well as speaking from the richness of your word to persuade us of that need to hang helplessly upon you, to deny self, to die to self, 
in order that Christ may increasingly be all in all in our lives. Seal your word to our minds and our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.